2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, with the chariots and the riders almost upon him. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the band on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, which they had fought, which had, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Jono. Um, I'm the, the lead pastor of uh, our sister church across the way at uh, Harrington Park and uh, the senior minister of our parish. And it's uh, great to be with you this morning. I love coming across and uh, sharing with my brothers and sisters at Gledswood Hills. And I'm looking forward to being here a bit more in the, uh, the coming months as Gav takes a, uh, a well-earned and needed uh, break um, and taking some long service leave. Uh, I'm going to be across here a bit more often, um, which will be great to be, uh, to be with you. Uh, as Will said, we're starting a new series in 2, two Samuel this morning. And uh, I'd ask you to join with me in, in uh, prayer as we uh, come to look at this part of God's Word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word and we ask that you would give us insight and understanding. We pray that we would come to know you better and that we would respond to you with repentance and faith. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I do apologise for my voice. We had a... Um, uh, a Fiji Mission Bush Dance fundraiser last night, um, and uh, I was calling the Bush Dance, uh, which was great fun, uh, but it has left my voice a little, um, a little tired. So we'll see how we go. I've got my water here. Um, one of my early memories from my childhood was uh, a time when my mother sent me to the corner store to buy a carton of milk. It's back in the days where there were corner stores in, in suburbs. I grew up in Armidale. And uh, she gave me the money, and she sent me off, and I walked the half block to the corner store. And as I walked into the store and towards the fridges where the, the cartons of milk were kept, that's when milk came in cartons. Milk still does come in cartons. But 
Uh, I passed the, uh, the front counter where there was a, a wonderful display of all the fabulous lollies that were on the counter. You might see where this is going. And uh, they had, you know, the, the little lollies, like the chocolate freckles and the chocolate milk buds. And the, my favourite were the caramel, the caramel swirls. And you could buy them for like one cent each. Or if they were big ones, they were two cents each. They were the really, you know, expensive ones. Um, you young guys, just like your mind is exploding at this point. Um, or you could get a, for 20 cents, you could get a little white paper bag of mixed lollies. Well, mum had given me a $2 note. Yes, I said that right. A $2 note. It was back in the time where $1 and $2 were, were notes. I think I've actually got one at the home. I should have dug it out. Um, and, and that was more than the cost of a carton of milk. And so I figured that, um, well, you know, maybe mum wouldn't notice if I also got some lollies. So as I got the carton of milk and gave the shopkeeper, gave him the $2, I asked also for a 20 cent bag of mixed lollies. He gave me the lollies, gave me the change. I took it home whilst enjoying, happily eating my lollies as I went. And I gave the milk and the change to my mum. I thought my crime would go undetected and I would happily enjoy the fruits of my deception. I was wrong. I had underestimated my mother. See, the thing is, my mum knew the cost of a carton of milk. And she knew how to calculate change from $2. She was a math teacher after all, so. And so she questioned me as to whether that was all the change that the shopkeeper had given me, which I honestly answered, yes, that's all the change that the shopkeeper gave me. Now, my mum was very frugal, and she was just as well, and she didn't want to be shortchanged, 20 cents. And so, or perhaps she was suspicious of her son as possible. So she sent me back to the store with a handwritten note to the shopkeeper explaining the discrepancy. I gave him the note. He read the note. He wrote back to my mother explaining that he had given me the correct amount of change for a carton of milk and 20 cents of mixed lollies. I was caught. <laughs> my sins had found me out. In fact, I think it was that day that my mother taught me that phrase, your sins will find you out. I was in big trouble. I discovered that day that crime doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. And we all know that, right? We know that crime doesn't pay. Or does it? Who says crime doesn't pay? I mean, after all, I got to eat my 20 cents of mixed lollies. I got some pay for my crime, although I'm not sure it was really worth it considering the trouble that I got into. Uh, that it was, I don't think it was sufficient compensation. But there was still something to be gained from my crime. And surely, as you think about it, every criminal throughout the world actually thinks that crime does pay. I mean, otherwise, if there was nothing to be gained for crime, they wouldn't commit crimes. Now, pretty soon, if there was no gain in crime, if crime didn't pay, Criminals would work out, actually, this is not really worth it. Let's stop doing crime. Surely criminals think that crime does pay. And I want to say, so do we. We think that crime pays. Every time we commit a crime, whether it's a, a legal crime or a moral crime, some sort of a wrongdoing of, of some sort, we do it figuring that there is actually some benefit, some pay to be gained by tweaking the truth here, cutting a corner there. For example, I mean, surely 
speeding just a little bit in my car to make sure that I get to church on time. I'm not late for church, especially when I get there in time for the sermon, especially if you're preaching. Surely there's gain to be had. By the way, I didn't speed this morning. I knew I was going to be speaking about this, so I made sure the speed I sat under 60. But we do think, surely there's something to be gained if I just fudge things just a little bit. Also, we can easily tell ourselves. Does crime pay? What do we really think? What do we really think? And not just in theory, what do we think in practice? Well, in this morning's passage in 2 Samuel, we, we, we encounter a man who entered into this space, entered into this dilemma with disastrous res- results. I'm talking about this Amalekite man who delivered the news to David about Saul's death. Now, at first glance, as, you, as Will read that for us, you might be a little bit conflicted about this guy. Maybe you're thinking, hang on a second, he gets a bit of a rough deal. He gets the rough end of a stick. Or maybe I should say the, the pointy end of a sword. I mean, this guy comes to David, he, he bows before him, he brings the good news that Saul is dead, and so David at last can be king. And he even brings David the king's crown and the king's armband. And we might think, well, David would thank him, David would reward him, but instead he orders that he be killed. And why? Well, because he supposedly had a hand in finishing off the half-dead and critically wounded Saul. You might hear this account and think, well, gee, what's going on here? Is this, is this a little bit heavy-handed? Now, to make sense of this, we, we need to, to step back and we need to see the background, we need to see the context of this chapter. Uh, as uh, I said, we're picking things up uh, in 2 Samuel 1. We're continuing on our series from, from 1 Samuel uh, last year. And 2 Samuel is, is a continuation of the story from 1 Samuel. So just to recap, um, we're about 1,000 years B.C., uh, Saul had been made the first king of Israel. He was chosen by the people so that they could have a king just like all the other nations had a king. And after some initial success, well, things went wrong and Saul proved to be a colossal failure. He disobeyed God. He uh, chose to not destroy God's enemies that God had told him to destroy, the Amalekites. And so God had rejected Saul as king and had chosen David to be the one who would replace him. And yet for many years, Saul continued to reign as king and David patiently waited. During that time, Saul pursued David, repeatedly tried to kill him to to remove this threat to his throne, but he'd failed. On a number of occasions, David had opportunity to kill Saul and to then take matters into his own hand and he could become king, but he refrained. On one occasion, uh, David and Abishai snuck into Saul's camp at night time while they were all sleeping. He, he came all the way to, to where Saul was lying asleep on the ground with his spear next to him. He had the opportunity to put his own spear through Saul to kill him, take matters into his own hand and become king, but he didn't. In fact, if you just turn back in your, in your Bible a couple of pages, there's no slides today, by the way. It's really helpful to have a Bible open in front of you. Turn back to 1 Samuel 26, verse 9. 1 Samuel 26 verse 9 we read but David said to Abishai don't destroy him who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless as surely as the Lord lives he said the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed 
David refrained from taking matters into his own hand. Meanwhile, Saul, throughout these chapters, continued to face the threat of, of the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. And 1 Samuel finishes in chapter 31 with the Philistines attacking and defeating Israel on Mount Gilboa. They kill Saul, they kill his sons Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. And we need to read that in order to make sense of what happens with this mysterious Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1. So just turn back a page to, uh, well, or forward, depending if you're in chapter 26, but turn to 1 Samuel 31. And this will give us the background to make sense of 2 Samuel 1. I'm going to read this for us. So from 1 Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw, uh, saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Now, the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel has told us here what happened. What happened on Mount Gilboa with Saul's death? And, and we're supposed to have this understanding as we come to 2 Samuel 1. And as we do, and we read through 2 Samuel 1, we pick up on some important discrepancies. So let's look more closely at 2 Samuel 1. Now, David wasn't with Saul on Mount Geboah. Uh, David was a long way to the south uh, at a place that was at that, at that time his home in the, in the, uh, the town of Ziklag. Uh, he had been defeating Amalekites. Uh, the Amalekites had raided Ziklag and had, had taken off the women and children and livestock. David came back, discovered this, went after them, pursued them, defeated them, brought back the people and the animals. You could read that in, in 1 Samuel 30. And so 2 Samuel begins with these words. 2 Samuel 1 verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. David knew of the battle, that's, uh, the Philistines and Saul. He knew of that, but he hadn't heard the results yet. He was waiting two days. But then verse 2, on the third day, the third day after the death of the king, ring any bells? Notice how the Bible, in the Bible, significant things happen on the third day. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. These are symbols of, of mourning, of, of lament. The man's appearance might have given a, a clue to, Saul, to, to, sorry, to David um, as to what his message uh, would have been, the news he was about to deliver. We read, when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. This man's bowing before the one who will now be king. I think he's deliberately positioning himself with this display of mourning, this, this subservience to David. In verse 3, David asks, where have you come from? He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Now, I think this is intriguingly ambiguous. What does he mean he's escaped? 
Has he escaped from the, the Philistines who have attacked the Israelite camp? Or is he saying that, well, he's kind of like David, has escaped from the Israelite camp, from Saul, and, and the way Saul had attempted to kill David? It's ambiguous. Verse 4, David asked, what happened? Tell me. He replied, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Now, this is devastating news for David. And he understandably questions how this man knew this. Is this report accurate? Verse 5, David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. Seems kind of strange that this man just happened to be hanging out on Mount Gilboa as the battle's taking place. Is he, is he kind of concealing something here? Oh, I happen to be on the mount. Perhaps. Or perhaps he was with Saul's army. Or perhaps he was with the Philistines. David can't know at this point. But the man continues. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. Now, so far, we're going to say, well, this aligns with, with the, what we know from 1 Samuel 31, except here we have chariots. In the other account, we had archers. Maybe you can correlate those. Maybe the archers were, were traveling in chariots. It does sound like this young man was actually there on Mount Gilboa. But this is where the creative storytelling starts. The young man continues, verse 7. When he, that is Saul, turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. It's interesting that, he, that the man includes this detail about his background. He's an Amalekite, one of the long-standing enemies of Israel. In fact, it was the Amalekites that Saul had failed to destroy when God told him to. But then he said, uh, so verse 9, the man Said that Saul said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. It's very close, isn't it, to the, uh, the exchange between Saul and his armor bearer. Saul's request that the armor bearer kill him, the armor bearer's ref, uh, refusal, his frightened refusal. It seems like this young man is has perhaps heard this conversation and then he's kind of twisted the truth to insert himself into the story in place of the armor bearer. The best lies have a resemblance to the truth. Now presumably this man did this to, to make himself appear more significant, probably assuming that, well, this will put him, give him favor with David, put him in a good place as he becomes king. Now, up to this point, David has no way of verifying the man's account. But then, in a carefully calculated move, the man now produces what would seem to be undeniable evidence of his credibility. Verse 10, he continues, And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. He produces the evidence of his, his credibility Clearly, this young man was on Mount Gilboa, where Saul and his crown were. And so putting the pieces together, I think we might conclude that, well, this man, is, well, he was there, all right. But he seized the opportunity to be the one to deliver the news to David. And he's placed himself in a in sort of prime position 
to be honoured by him. Now, if that's what the man was expecting, to be honoured by David, he was badly mistaken. David's response wasn't to, to rejoice, to shout, to say, yippee, that's fantastic. My arch enemy Saul is dead. Now I can be king at last. Hey, thanks, dude, for letting me know. Um, thanks for bringing me the crown. How about you be my right-hand man? How does that sound? That wasn't David's response. Look at how David responded to the news of Saul's death. Verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. This was a disaster. It was a disaster for the nation of Israel, for Saul, for Jonathan. And so it was a disaster for David along with his men. David doesn't rejoice. And David doesn't honor this young man. We see his response to the young man, verse 13. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? Notice that, um, how it describes the young man. The young man who brought him the report. It's the same in, back in verse 5. I, I think it's kind of underlining, raising suspicions about this, this guy and his report. David asks him, Where are you from? He's kind of interrogating him. He's already asked him, verse 3, where have you come from? It's like he's saying, where did you say you're from again? The man answers, verse 13, slightly differently. He says here, oh, I'm the son of a foreigner and a Malachite. Now, son of a foreigner means a foreigner to Israel. That is, he's, he's the son of a, a resident alien, a foreigner who's come in among Israel to live as, a, as an immigrant, if you like, of Israel. Maybe now this man is trying to kind of reposition himself, not as an, an Amalekite, as an enemy, but as, a, as an ex-Amalekite who's now, now with Israel. And maybe that also explains how he happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Maybe he was with Saul and his army. And David then asked the young man a question that would have vanished any vain hopes of personal glory and set him shaking in his boots. Verse 14, David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Saul's armor bearer, when he was asked to kill Saul, was terrified and would not do it. David himself had had cause to, to, to kill Saul many times, who'd been murderously hunting him for years, and yet he would not do it. He knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. It's not for him to stand against him. But this young man here in pursuit of personal gain, he thought nothing of claiming that he had destroyed the Lord's anointed, even though that was in fact a lie. And what a devastating miscalculation it was. We read verse 15, Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This man in pursuit of personal gain and advantage had underestimated, underestimated the righteousness of God's king, David. I mean, he thought... 
He could have David as king and, well, still be an Amalekite at heart. He, he wanted to have the outward show of allegiance to the king, but he didn't pursue the righteousness of the king. And he became really an, an example for, for anyone at all who would think that, well, wrongdoing can pay when God's king reigns. Anyone who entertains that thought seriously misunderstands the character of God's king. And so I think the lesson for us as we hear this terrible story, we ought to examine our, our own unacknowledged beliefs about the benefits to be gained by our wrongdoing. Jesus was declared to be God's anointed king. Jesus descended by the flesh from David. He's God's anointed king. Declared with power by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, 4 says. And so the question for us is, do we see Jesus as he is? Jesus Christ, the, the righteous one, 1 John 2, verse 1 says. Jesus, whose kingdom is the kingdom of righteousness. Jesus, who will judge the world with righteousness, Acts 17, 31 says. There's a lesson for us to be learned here from this Amalekite man. If we're going to take God's kingdom seriously, then we must take righteousness seriously. If Jesus is king, then we shouldn't imagine that, that any wrongdoing will bring any kind of personal gain that's going to be worth it. Jesus is the Christ. And so seeking first the kingdom of God will mean seeking first his righteousness. In uh, Revelation 21 verse 8, it says, There'll be no place in the kingdom of God for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Now, whether or not we actually believe that, that'll be shown on, by whether we stand against the temptation to seek pleasure, security, fulfillment, happiness through wrongdoing of, of any kind. This opening passage from 2 Samuel teaches us that crime doesn't pay and any attempt to seek gain through wrongdoing is actually short-sighted and deluded. And that's because this world is God's world. Hebrews 11.25 speaks of the, the fleeting pleasures of sin and, and that's what they are. They're fleeting, they're passing away. It, it may not seem like that. They may seem like, oh, that brings some kind of gain, but it actually is like that. Because the one who determines the final outcome is the one who made the world, the one who rules the world. He is the holy and righteous God. So this passage speaks of the righteousness of God's king. And that's not to say everything about God's character. God is righteous. He's also gracious. He's also merciful. If we fast forward about a thousand years from the death of Saul to a day not long after the, the death of Jesus in a... Whoa, what's going on with our sound? We're okay? Nope. We, we fast forward from, from the death of Saul through to the death of Jesus. Not long after that, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to the crowds gathered in Jerusalem. He said these words in Acts 2, verse 36... Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, notice, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And these men who stood there before Peter, they had done what this young Amalekite had claimed to have done. They had lifted their hand against the Lord's anointed. They had crucified the Lord. And they were confronted with that reality. What would happen? Would they fall under the hand of his righteous judgment? No. Peter didn't reply and say, yeah, you guys are stuffed. Your blood be on your own head. No, he replied and he said these words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God's righteous king offers forgiveness. And he does that because in his death, as those men lifted their hands against him, in his death he took upon himself God's righteous judgment that we would otherwise face. What grace, what mercy is ours in Christ? And even though we have, well, we have pursued our own gain through wrongdoing, and in that we've, well, we've positioned ourselves against the Lord's anointed. Despite that, God in his mercy offers forgiveness. He welcomes us into his kingdom. He calls us to bow before him. He calls us to seek him first. To seek first, not our own gain, but to seek his kingdom. Praise God for his righteousness and his forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that you have installed your righteous King, the Lord Jesus, over your kingdom. He has been declared with power to be the Christ, to be the King, by his resurrection from the dead. Father, we confess that, that all too often we pursue gain for ourselves through wrongdoing. And so, Father, we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would refine us, that you would... You would show us how to live in your kingdom, seeking to live out the righteousness of our Lord and King Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.